and welcome to the Modern Industrialist Podcast, the show where we talk about accelerating transformation in the Industry 4.0 era. Our goal with this series is to help spur adoption of technologies that are critical to industrial innovation by talking about the current trends and challenges that we're seeing in the space. My name is Jason Heeman. I'm the vertical lead for Industry 4.0 at TXI. Today, we're talking with our guest, Zachary Pena. Zachary is the managing partner for sourcing and business development at Empirics Partners. Empirics provides strategic sourcing and procurement consulting services. They help their clients optimize their procurement, ensure supply chain resilience, and develop mission-critical infrastructure like data centers. In the last decade, Zachary has led and built mission-critical procurement programs at NTT, Microsoft, and Insight Sourcing Group. Before starting his career in supply chain, he served in the Marine Corps and graduated from the University of Tennessee's Supply Chain Management Program. I'm excited to share this conversation with you. Zach's lessons and insights around mission-critical infrastructure are particularly relevant to our regular topics of industrial automation and building resilient supply chains. After the conversation with Zach, Turley and I will talk about some of our takeaways and share some of the AI and smart manufacturing discoveries we came across this past week. But first, here's Zachary Pena from Empirics Partners. Zach, welcome to the Modern Industrials Podcast. It's great to have you here. Hey, great to be here. Thanks, guys. So we've been really excited to talk with you. Uh, we've had a couple of side conversations over the last couple of weeks. Um, so I think Charlie and I feel like we've started to get a great feel for what you all do at Empirics Partners. But let's bring the audience in on it. Why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about the types of clients that you all work with and what are the challenges that you're really helping them address? Yeah, so we are 100% dedicated to the mission-critical market, right? So um, what does that mean? <laughs> it means a lot to a lot of people, um, but we really sit there and, and focus in on um, data centers, um, high-tech, AR, um, IR applications, um, anything to do with, uh, we have urban farming, uh, a lot of different things that are within that, right? Um, all the way through tra transportation, oil and gas, um, and renewables, right? So a lot of the stuff in that spectrum, that's what we concentrate on because we've seen that the majority of those supply chains are very similar. Mm. They don't, they might not be buying all of the exact same capital equipment and services, but they're buying it from the same people, right? Or the same, the same suppliers or supply base. So we're able to leverage those relationships, leverage that opportunity and really drive value for our end users. Um, where we really concentrate on strategic sourcing, procurement, and overall business strategy for those individuals. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the the people in this space tend to focus on you know some real niche, singular, specific vertical, and it's um, it's often useful to to say like, hey, actually, like this thing that uh, applies in data centers uh, really does uh, does a bunch of good stuff for the oil and gas industry, and being able to connect those dots is uh, is a really useful place to sit. I was, uh, I was curious though, uh, maybe, uh, th that's a lot of, uh, you know, ground to cover. That's a, it's a, it's a pretty big space. Uh, how, uh, maybe you could just tell us your story, your, your, your personal uh, story of how you got here. What's the, what's the, what's the career path that leads you to sit in your seat today? Yeah. Um, so it's pretty interesting. I'm, I'm one of the, the, I call it few people outside of, I'd say engineers, doctors, and, and probably architects that actually use their degree. <laughs> um, and so I, I was able to actually, you know, take the, take the money that was spent for those four years of my undergrad and actually use it, which is nice. Um, but, but all of this started, um, straight out of high school, 
um, I went to the Marine Corps and uh, went to the infantry and, and got to see the world and, and go experience things in a different light from obviously growing up in the States um, down in, you know, kind of in the South and in Knoxville, Tennessee. And, and one of those things that was different was seeing, you know, kind of seeing not only, you know, different ways of looking at things, different ways of experiencing, but, but understanding that it one, it can always be worse. <laughs> and two, un understanding that, um, you know, the things that we take for granted um, in our day to days are are very hard to get, um, especially when you're in a combat zone. And, and that's what got me really interested in logistics and supply chain. Um, right before I got out, I actually met with a couple um, potential mentors and one of them was a logistics officer. And he got me really hooked on, hey, you know, solving the problem of getting bullets and beans and and band-aids and fuel and everything else to people that are in the middle of nowhere um, and kind of keeping that war zone, you know, um, logistically supported. And for some reason, out of all the business things that I could go after, that's what really um, did it for me. And I actually grew up a Notre Dame fan. Uh, so all my UT friends can't hear this, but um, <laughs> grew up a Knoxville Notre Dame fan during the Peyton Manning era, the golden era of Tennessee football. Um, and I didn't like Tennessee. And I said, I would never go to school there. But guess who had the best supply chain department in the world? Tennessee did. Um, so I went home, got my degree from there, um, and went straight into additional manufacturing with Georgia Pacific. So got to see and feel that, hey, let's go make a widget. Let's go make something and, and get those raw materials out there. And, and I got thrown in the fire pretty quickly because uh, I was on the outsourced finished goods side, which I had to go help them make things that they, they don't make as a core competency. So going out there and finding you know, base paper and inks and all this stuff that had to be put into a product that they were selling, but not making themselves. So I had to go learn things very quickly. I had to go learn processes, procedures and, and supply bases that didn't exist in the realm of the company that I worked for. Um, and I did it at a young age. And so that was really taking the, the great things I learned in the Marine Corps and the being comfortable in an uncomfortable scenario um, and, and just getting at it and, and learning things as quickly as I could and being that sponge, um, knowing when to soak it up and knowing when to properly release it uh, to get what you need. Right. Um, so got into that and shocker. I love Georgia Pacific, made a grad, tons of friends, even to this day, my chief of staff worked there as well. Uh, and so paper didn't do it for me. Right. So I went into consulting and I, that's where I really got humbled quickly and realized, Hey, I was a big fish in a small pond. Now I'm a tiny fish in a big pond. Um, and I had to very quickly rest of my, you know, kind of go back to my Marine Corps days and say, okay, how do I rapidly learn something that I don't know? And how do I get real comfortably and uncomfortable again? And for some reason, I'm a glutton for punishment. And I kept doing that in my career. Uh, so I went into, went into um, KPMG, actually quickly moved over to a, to a firm called Insight Sourcing Group. Um, which is, you know, they're great. They actually just got bought by a censure. So good luck to those guys. Nice. Uh, and well and that's where I got my taste in the data centers or the first mission critical space, right? And and I had to almost overnight learn data centers. I didn't know what a data center was from a hole in the wall um, other than, hey, this is where data and compute is, you know, lives. Um, I had to go figure out how to construct them, how to source, procure, and run a supply chain for one. Um, and that's that was kind of the step into it. And I worked for a company called Cyrus One as my client. 
and really helped them explode in the United States and did their entire new market entry into Europe from a supply chain perspective. Um, and that's where I, I fell in love with data centers and, and the supply chain for mission critical and, and really gained those key, I'll call it relationships um, and knowledge bases that have put me in the position I am today. And, and from there, I spent time at Microsoft and NTT Global Data Centers, and then now landing here at overall Decenio Group, which is my private equity firm that we work that we work for, but then leading um, the solely owned subsidiary called Empirics Partners, which is what I lead today. I, I love so, the story. Uh, I, I got I got two takeaways that I wanted to, to jump on here. Uh, one is, uh, first off, I'd never heard the term bullets, beans, and band-aids, and I'm using it all the time. I'm sorry. Like, I hope that's it. not co-opting a culture <laughs> that like I didn't participate good, in, man. but I, I, I think it's, it's, there's something about the military that just gets these punchy, uh, real pithy, awesome phrases that work all over the place. Uh, so, um, much appreciated. And then secondly, I think, uh, that's a story that a lot of people can latch onto about just being open to new opportunities, opportunities, having a really good attitude and, and jumping on things. And I think that, uh, that that's going to resonate with a lot of uh, leaders in this space for sure. But I think um, the people who uh, do the work, um, I think that's a, that's a, that's a really good uh, message for them to hear uh, because uh, as a lot of technologies change uh, in the sort of industrial space, um, we often talk about people needing to uh, change their skill sets and, and how do we create a culture that, uh, that adapts to these things. And, and it, you're, you're speaking to what I think are strong, uh, company values that are just your personal values. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I really appreciate you, you throwing all those things out. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah. yeah, Zach, the thing that I think might be interesting for our, our audience to kind of take advantage of your insight, um, what's so hard about building data centers, right? Like, how tough could it be? Now I, I know it's really hard, but I would love to get your. I'd love to get it's your not perspective. Not just a box, right? Is that what we're saying? Max, like you little punk. Uh, <laughs> no, no I mean, what, what's making it challenging these days? Yeah. Um, no, I mean you have the very, very publicly known things around supply chain issues and power and and labor and and all these other things, right? But when when it gets down, kind of. The brass tacks, right? What what makes building data so hard is you're combining. You're almost you have the intersection of industrial manufacturing and construction at at a crossroads, right? And and people don't realize that those are two of the most in depth, crazy fields to be in right now. Uh, when it comes to be getting on target, when it comes to construction, and on target when it comes to cost, right? Um, and so the you you know you can have the best construction team in the world and they can have all the safety requirements and scheduling and, and the best relationships for their mechanical and electrical trades and all that. And still something will go wrong. It always does. And what wrong, what wrong goes on, that can be something as small as someone getting their finger cut all the way up to, you know, something not great happening on site. Right. Um, and, and so you mix that with, industrial manufacturing with all of the capital equipment and raw materials that go into the building. Um, and you have, you know, supply chain delays and you have logistical challenges and you have geopolitical issues. I mean, Hey, I was getting my, I was getting my generators from Ukraine and now we're at war. Oh crap. What, you know, what do you do? Right. Um, and so there's, it's like doing a jigsaw puzzle upside down in the dark um, is really what it comes down to. And it's not that it's impossible. I think it's fun. I geek out about it. Maybe that's why I, I enjoy doing it. But 
at the same time, it is not something easy. It's not just putting up four walls. It's not just, you know, creating a box and putting data or storage or whatever you're going to put inside of it. Um, that's the cool and the fun and the sexy part. Um, what makes it hard is actually getting that building to stand up in a very safe, timely and cost efficient manner and being able to put everything inside of it in a safe, cost effective manner as well. And I think that's what actually makes it challenging. So I, I think of, I have a very close friend who works in facilities for a major children's hospital. Um, and you know, speaking of like, you know, critical um, infrastructure, right? The expression that they have on their team is the plane never lands, right? Mm-hmm. They're never not up. Um, and I think that is another intersection point of the data centers that I think is really important, right? You're not just building a thing. It's a thing that has to be always on, always ready, it has to be resilient. And that has a whole nother dimension to how you think about this, right? Correct. And, and I, you know, your friend works in mission critical if he knows it or not, right? Or she knows it or not, right? And, and hospitals, transportation, all of that is in that realm. And so that's why we keep our concentration, we'll call it a concentration, but it's pretty wide, right? Within mission critical, because that mindset the the way in which you have to you know address everything the the people the processes the procedures are all generally the same and so that's why it's great overlap for for us i my my supposition as you were talking about like just getting supplies is that these types of projects uh, given their scale uh kind of do necessitate that geopolitical like you're not you basically never are going to get something that's like absolutely everything is locally made that's just a preposterous idea in this space Correct. right like you've got to deal with these you got to engage in the complexities of like um multinational supply chain kind of stuff mm-hmm. i mean we're not sitting here trying to build like the boeing 787 dreamliner where they sourced i swear like nuts and fasteners from opposite sides of the world because they just enjoy random challenges like that. Yeah, they, but, like, they like to keep it hard. Yeah, yeah like, they just, you know, like we hate, you know, we hate having an easy day at work. I, I think they have that like over the top of their door frame or something. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, we're not getting that far into it. But yeah, we're sourcing things from all parts of North America. We're sourcing things from different parts of especially high voltage equipment. People, a lot of people don't realize that the majority of the grid system that is in the United States a lot of that infrastructure is actually made over in Europe. Um, it's made in, in South America, you know, in, in in Mexico, made in some other parts of the world, right? Um, it's not always made here in the, the great four walls of the U.S. Uh, and so that makes it challenging regardless of what you're building within the mission critical field. Absolutely. I think everyone can obviously appreciate the supply chain aspect of what's happening as you're building these mission critical facilities and operations. Um, what is the under the radar aspect of your job that kind of like makes it tricky and unique or that you find like really fascinating or, or challenging about what you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I really think it's the people, right? It's the relationships that, that, that win the day. Um, and, and that was the, the magnifying glass was shined very quickly on that during COVID um, and, and any of the, the recent supply chain issues that have been out there, right? The Suez Canal and, and some other stuff. Um, and and it, you either had it or you didn't. And if you didn't have it, you figured out real fast, right? Um, and the people that did have it, it's not that they were completely safe. They just had the, the odds were in their favor, right? To be able to get through things and to get through it. And that's not saying that that you have to go out there and and have a perfect relationship with five suppliers for every category. That's, that's not the thing. Right. But it's treating people like people 
and, and it's and it's making sure that you understand that you are a cog in the wheel of the overall supply chain and the way that you interact with your suppliers and the way you interact with your laborers and the, you know, the supply base, your general contractors. I mean, all these guys are part of that supply chain web, right? Um, that, that, you know, if you, if you're fortunate enough to have my background, you learned about that in undergrad, you've learned about that studying and everything else. Right. But, um, a lot of people don't look at it that way. And that's the underlining bit, regardless of if you're sourcing it, if you're making it, um, or if you're selling it or reselling it, the people are, are what gets you through all of this, um, and help you solve that puzzle upside down in the dark. Zach, uh, that just made me think, uh, you're talking about some some broad um, managing people is is a lot about leadership uh, and and other characteristics. How do you how do you pull together uh, this disparate of a group of people that are going to need to work on a project like this? And how uh, any any like quick tips of like how you get alignment uh, in uh, in this world? And it, maybe there's something about the the mission critical nature of the of the work that you do that helps people sort of like you know snap to agreement faster um is there is there anything special yeah. in this space um I, I don't know if there's anything special i think it's just the approach right is it's understanding how people are incentivized at every level right so when you go into negotiations and you go into you know people view negotiations as as you versus me or them versus us and and it's really not um if you go in that way you might win but at the end of the day you didn't win because somebody lost and when somebody loses a negotiation you might not feel the pain now, but you're going to feel it later. Um, and a lot of people felt that during COVID is, you know, the suppliers right, wrong or indifferent that supported the mission critical space when they it finally flipped from a buyer's market to a seller's market. Um, they took advantage of that and prices went way up. They went and they they grabbed back a lot of uh, lost revenue over the last you know multitude of years. And they took advantage of that. And they really took advantage of the people that that they didn't like. <laughs> or they didn't have the relationships with, right? And I won't mention names, but past places I've worked had the quote unquote insert the company's name tax on the back end of it, right? Because they were a pain in the butt to work with. And that tax multiplied during COVID and so on and so on and so on, right? And so it's really like understanding how people are incentivized, not only that you're working with on your day-to-day -day externally, but also internally to put the right butts in the right seats to make the right decisions. Um, and I think that applies to your point across the board. That's not, I don't think just in supply chain, just in mission critical, but across all manufacturing, across all aspects of business. Yeah. You're hitting on two really great themes there that I immediately thought of. One, the idea that negotiations do not need to be a zero sum game, right? Like that's, right. that's a great lesson. And you also make me think of Simon Sinek and some of the work that he's talked about in terms of playing the infinite game and the idea that there's multiple rounds, right? And optimizing for a fixed end game ultimately leaves you in a bit of a, uh, a short position, so to speak. A hundred percent. He might be one of my, my select five spirit animals. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. You know. <laughs> All right. I'm going to circle back to the other four spirit animals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Might, need some, might need some bourbon to talk about the other four spirit animals. But yeah, um, I love that we, I mean, it's obvious that the, the impacts of the pandemic would come up in this kind of a conversation. Um, I'm curious of the major effects of that, what have faded away? 
Um, I'm sure many things have faded away, but what are the challenges that are maybe still persisting uh, that people don't fully appreciate or aren't obvious to those of us who aren't on the front lines of this right now? I think the, I mean, there's a lot of things to your point that have, have gone away and people have, you know, temporarily forgotten about. Right. But, but I think that's the root cause of, of what's still out there is that people have very short memories. Um, I call them, I call them goldfish, right? The industry has a lot of goldfish out there and they're forgetting what caused what caused the problems for COVID, right? It was lean manufacturing. Lean manufacturing is not a bad thing. Just in time or JIT, right? Um, it's great, especially if you're a CFO, right? You love it. Um, and you can do that. But when the entire supply chain is just in time, then a tiny blip takes out the entire thing, right? Um, and it's not saying that everybody shouldn't be as efficient and make as much, as much money as humanly possible and, and drive as much value for their companies and their employees and everything else that should happen. Right. But because of the goldfish effect, we'll call it, people are already starting to forget what caused all this. And so businesses and, it, and it's scary to watch, especially from a from an advisory perspective, you already see companies slipping back into some of the horrible things that caused this in the first place. So they're, they're forgetting that, hey, maybe I don't need stock anymore. Maybe I don't need to plan as far forward as anymore. Maybe that technology we went spent hundreds of millions of dollars on to implement from a planning um, and manufacturing process, maybe we won't spend that next year and keep updating it and keep optimizing and deploying it, right? I mean, there's 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 things like that. I'm not saying everybody's doing that, but I think that's the biggest thing that that is happening is that people are getting comfortable again. Do we still have ridiculous lead times on some on some capital equipment? And do we still have, you know, higher prices than they probably should be on some services and stuff like that? Yes. But I mean, I think that's just economically what happens when you have an event like that. Right. Prices go up, they settle and they really never go back down. Right. Like cheeseburgers used to cost five cents. That's mm -hmm. never happening again. Right. Um, a dollar menu at McDonald's used to. I mean, gosh, that got me through freaking high school. Right. And college. Right. Like. <laughs> You can't get a cheeseburger at McDonald's. I mean, I haven't been in a long time, but from what I'm told, you can't get a cheeseburger for less than like a buck seventy at McDonald's now, right? It almost doubled in cost. So, so like you have a lot of these individuals that are in leadership positions, and and it's not not throwing shade on them at all, right? But it's 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 kind of like the natural human evolution that either you remember what happened and you plan for it and you embed that into your culture, or you react to it, solve the problem, and you don't ever actually solve um, the thing that caused it. Right. Well, yeah. And I think so that's gonna, the big I, issue. I'll, 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 uh, I'll push you because, uh, I, I wonder this, uh, there haven't been a ton of global pandemics. Uh, you know, we don't do that every Thursday. <laughs> uh, and so like, I think there is a, there is a, a natural sort of business reaction to that type of stuff. And they, and we overcorrect. Uh, and I think a lot of, a lot of businesses are wondering how much should we plan for the next global pandemic? And there's no, no one's got the crystal ball. No one knows. Um, and so I guess I, 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 I give you that, that little bit to, to respond to, to say like, well, is it, is it responsible to say, you know what, if we have another global pandemic, we're just going to let it all fall a little bit apart for a minute uh, while the world gets it together again, you know, like, yeah, no, I mean, I, it's a fair point. I mean, I think you can't, you can't prepare for anything. Right. I mean, even, I mean, the great Mike Tyson, right. Everybody has a plan to get hit in the mouth. Right. I mean, that is <laughs> right. the truest thing. That's one of my top five truest things. Right. Everything happens for a reason. And everyone's got a plan to get hit in the mouth. Right. We'll talk about the others later. But 
Open you know, bourbon. We're open bourbon. <laughs> I can't give you guys everything, right? We right, right, right. Not in one episode, right? Yeah, okay. exactly. You got to do this more than once. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so, so at the end of the day, you know, you can't prepare for everything, but what you can do is be smart, right? And what being smart is, at least in my in my humble opinion, right, is is understanding that there will be something next, and it might not be as big as a pandemic. It might not be. It might be as small as. <laughs> A, a rail derailment, not small, right? But, you know, a rail derailment and the stuff that got derailed was coming to your factory, right? Like those things happen every day. They might not be on the news, but they do happen. And so being smart to plan for stuff like that is, hey, am I planning properly? Do I have the right technology in place to handle this? Am I putting the right people in the seats, right? Am I, am I investing in the right things to prepare us for the future? Whatever that looks like, understanding that there's always going to be a supply chain risk. Or there's always going to be a labor risk or there's always going to be something. And yeah, should we swing that pendulum all the way to one side? No, because that never works out for anybody. Right. Um, but like, what's that happy medium to where saying, hey, we know as a company that we're managing the risk, but we're not we're not overly managing the risk. Right. So that answer is going to be, you know, my favorite favorite, the favorite thing to say as a consultant. It depends. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but it depends on the company and, and what that looks like. Right. Because not everybody's supply web is the same. Well, I, I also think, you know, a thing that this has got me thinking about is um, we don't always have to react to uh, and plan for another global pandemic, but it could be a war. Uh, those we got we got a couple of those going on and those are impacting things. It could be. Um, yeah, it could be uh, some of the. Um, uh, some of the natural uh, disasters, natural uh, like climate change uh, could impact things. Um, you know, all, all that kind of stuff does disrupt this. And maybe you just think about them all as on equal footing, right? Yeah. It's, it's really about how do you, ch how do you respond to uh, an unforeseen change? How are you nimble? Uh, and for us, like the, our, our take on all that is like, how does technology help you position uh, to, the, to, to do well in that space? Well, so good segue, right? So, we're talking about all the bad things. Let's talk hmm. about the good change, right? Yeah. So yeah. when technology comes in, right? I mean, shoot, AI, right? What's AI truly going to do, right? Are we going to have to retool, refocus the workforce? Are we going to have to, and, and that's not just, you know, people view as the the, the wrench turners. That's who we're going to, no, it's, it's all levels of business, right? Um, your CEO has to think differently all the way down to your, I mean, your procurement leadership, all the way down to people that are doing cost man. I mean, all these people, um, you know, we have to understand how we manage that change too. Um, and because that's a risk because the only thing that's guaranteed in life is change. Right. And so it's, it's not always negative. <laughs> well, I think the other thing that, uh, you know, uh, we work in the tech space and uh, tech is very used to this, but I don't think the average, you know, manufacturing company is right. There is not as much, uh, expedient disruption. Uh, and I think part of the story of what industry 4.0 is about is to say, Hey, it's, it's, it's happening. Like it's the, the, the technological changes are coming to you. Uh, and it's, it's a bit about sounding that I want to say alarm, but like ringing the bell. So Zach, as we start thinking about wrapping up, uh, this conversation, which has just been so great, uh, I'm thinking about our audience of decision makers who work in manufacturing and in industrial organizations. What would you advise that they have in their strategic plan from IT or OT 
or what should they be thinking about have front of mind as they're embracing some of these important changes and thinking about resilience and planning in their own operations and supply chain? Yeah, great question. The I think the biggest thing that we see, regardless of industry, right, is making sure they have a plan and they're not reacting to the market and they're not um, resting on their laurels, right? And and that's hard to do. It's it's against human nature not to say, hey, I've been doing this for 30 years. I've been doing this for 20 years. Um, this is what I think. Or And you have a whole room of those individuals usually, right? I mean, you get the leadership through through age usually, right? Um, especially in large, large organizations. And that's not a bad thing, um, but it's it's making sure that they seriously sit down and think about, hey, this is truly our mission. And how does, and, and it does that need to be our mission in the future? And if it does, how do we plan to that? And, and if it's not, that's good and that's okay, but what is that new mission and what is the plan to get there? And, and I don't think that base of a conversation has had a lot. It's normally like, hey, we're in this, you know, 50 ton tank going down the road and we're going after X, Y, Z and here's our mission. And okay, how do we make sure the tank doesn't break down on the way there? How do we make sure that it has enough fuel, all that fun stuff, right? A lot of people don't sit back and say, why am I driving a tank? Right? Mm. Do I need to be? Should I be in a Prius? <laughs> right? Uh, you know, and and I think that's the biggest thing is taking it down to the basics. And that's something that we do with our clients all the time, right? And, and our partners all the time is saying, okay, we know you want to talk about this awesome, sexy, cool thing, but let's seriously sit down and break it to the, the minimal detail of saying, okay, why are we here? Um, and I think if a lot of people, more leaders did that, that they'd be able to sit back and look at, look at their issues and look at their problems holistically. And so they can truly tackle the end goal of whatever that, that, that North star truly is. Yeah. I think, uh, I think your point, uh, a little bit here is to say that, and those leaders don't have to do that alone, right? Like there's, uh, there's a lot of support out there. There's community, uh, that exists. There's companies like ours that, uh, that do these various different types of consulting and it's a good good way to deploy uh advisory services uh to to support yeah 100 love that perfect point to end on zach this has really been a pleasure appreciate you coming and bringing so much experience and great stories and a really valuable perspective that i think our audience is going to appreciate so thank you thank you very much thanks guys my pleasure I really enjoyed that conversation with Zach. Uh, he really brought some great, great stories to the uh, to the podcast. Yeah, and he's just like a wildly personable, delightful dude to hang out with. Uh, um, this is a real treat. We have to make time to get the rest of his spirit animals. I, I'm yeah. going to add that on our list of things to do. We have a bonus gotta, episode. Got to be careful. Like that dude's, uh, I'm going to be drinking way too much bourbon with that guy. Uh. I could see that happening to both of us. Um, it's funny. It's I think that this focus or this emphasis on mission-critical infrastructure is super interesting. Uh, the idea that there are whole different ways of thinking about your planning process and we need to prepare for when it's like that level of execution and that narrow of a window of acceptable failure rate. Um, I was looking at an article just talking about the challenges of supplying mission-critical infrastructure. Uh, I think the stat that I read was that the lead time right now on generators uh, could be anywhere from 70 to 90 weeks, 70 to 90 weeks out planning some of these types of operations of what they're trying to build. 
Yeah. We were, uh, we, we talking to a, uh, a client of ours that they're trying to reduce overall time of their maintenance process. Uh, but it turns out sometimes they, you know, they can't get parts for, uh, six months and that blows the entire timeline out of the water, even though they're, they're only spending like 90 hours doing the actual work. Uh, well, if it takes six months to get the, 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 the part or whatever, it really wrecks everything. So it, these supply chain issues really are, um, there it, it, it's, it leads to big operational challenges. We didn't specifically get into this with Zach, but I am optimistic that I think the work that we're doing at TXI and what's happening more broadly in terms of AI is starting to shine a light on how planning can be done better, like through software, uh, and how you know some better insight into these logistical challenges can at least be surfaced, if not immediately solved. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the thing that excites me is uh, is some of what he was touching on about uh, reacting better and having a plan for how, how we're going to react. I think to AI tools can really help a lot there. Uh, planning out what if scenarios, uh, really, really uh, illuminating those different spaces. And then also like when the thing happens, um, responding well, knowing where it all hits uh, the, the downstream effects of everything that, that needs to needs to change. The, the tooling is getting better and better every day. Um, wow. What a perfect transition. It's like, you just laid it up for me. Uh, <laughs> I think we're going to go a little bit different than how we have in the past, uh, away from our, what did we ask generative AI this week? Um, but you have something that you encountered that is AI specific this week that I know you've been excited to talk about. And I want to hear what your experience was. Yeah. Um, uh, I made some uh, new buddies out there. Uh, the company is called bookend.ai. Uh, uh, they basically these guys are trying to bring uh, the idea of uh, training and developing and deploying models in uh, in a safe uh, sort of enterprise friendly way. Um, uh, they're trying to make that more developer friendly, right? This is a complicated subject that a lot of people don't know a lot about. Uh, how do you use generative AI in uh, in a, in a, an environment that cares a lot about where their data goes and what it's being used to be trained on and various other things? These guys are kind of trying to solve that problem, and so um, we're doing a we're doing a couple of little uh, I- engagements to try and show how this uh, how what they do is is really impressive and, and cool. Um, but I think a lot of folks are like me, where you've played a little bit with um, with generative AI. Uh, that's certainly the the starter level, and then I think a lot of engineers are like fiddled around with uh, making something with generative AI, like a tool or something like that. Then the idea of taking that into their their actual day to day work, there's this big leap in in well, I'm using maybe OpenAI, uh, you know, Chat GPT's backing APIs uh, to get some of these things done, and there's just this cliff. Like, how do I how do I take this forward? And it, and what if my space is a little bit more specific? I need I I can't just use that general language model to get the job done for me. Um, how do I take that forward? And uh, these guys are doing uh, a lot of great work to help sort of make some of that possible. And I'm, I'm loving it. Uh, and I, and I really like the team there. They're, uh, they're all fantastic and super engaged. Uh, great stuff. That's great. You're going to have a couple of the guys start playing with it. Uh, yeah, we're, uh, I'm, uh, I've got, uh, I don't know. I've got a couple of, uh, really good projects, uh, in cooking in the back, but we'll save those for other, other podcast episodes. Got to, got to set up with the, with the tease. Yeah. Um, 
for for my part of the segment, I wanted to do a bit of like stories from the front lines, right? Like where technology and manufacturing are, are intersecting, like what's actually happening out there. Um, I came across this fantastic article from uh, about two weeks ago. Uh, it was in the Wall Street Journal. Um, companies brought in robots. Now they need human robot wranglers. So it's this fascinating story with a bunch of like little vignettes about the experience that folks are having in these warehouse and manufacturing and industrial situations where automation's advancing, we have robots that are doing jobs, uh, and that human-robot interaction uh, is something that's increasingly becoming a story of the workforce. Um, and there's just this one excerpt that I have to share with you all because it just delighted me. Some devices get a reputation. One autonomous robot that this woman works with, a device she called Drive, um, and has nicknamed Blinky, has become known for its misbehavior. Uh, basically, when a robotic arm tries to set an item down on Blinky's conveyor belt, Blinky will move its belt too quickly and bungle the transfer. People recognize Blinky on site because it zooms around faster than all the other bots. Uh, and there's this great little kicker. Blinky could not be reached for comment. <laughs> I love it. Right? It's it's like a, like that movie Wall-E. Uh, you know, it's a... It's very there are real. So many cinematic situations going back to Star Wars of all things, right? Um, and this idea of like uh, personification of these autonomous uh, coworkers that we are increasingly going to be uh, be working with. I mean, how many conversations just in TXI Slack have we conversed about like how polite or impolite are we with Gen AI when we're asking it questions? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, right. Like, to what extent do we hold ourselves to certain yeah, standards? Like, uh, it's I. I don't know. Like my uh, my wife and I talk a lot about that, e even pre sort of Gen AI. Like, how do I talk to you know Alexa or you know, Google Assistant? Like, do I do I say please and thank you? I feel like I should. Otherwise, that that's that's damaging my soul. I need to uh, I need to be kind. Uh, you know. Yes, yes. But I'm I'm excited for the uh, movie plots, Netflix series, and sitcoms if tv still becomes a thing uh telling all of these stories in uh funny and you know possibly uh romantic tones i don't know we'll see where yeah. this goes i i like i like calling the shot that's uh, that's excellent <laughs> all right i think we should end it on that note i want to thank all of you for joining us today if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes our ambition is to continue to cover the important topics and trends shaping industrial automation from manufacturing through supply chain. We'll see you next time on The Modern Industrialist.